0: Thank you, Sister Jacqueline, for that beautiful reading. amen. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you that you have given us grace to hear it. We pray, O Lord, that you would also give us grace to believe it, to receive it by faith and to apply it to our lives, to be holy as you are holy. We just sang, O oh Lord, speak to our hearts. Lord, speak to us a, a word in due season. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray, in our pilgrimage. Help us to bring glory and honor to your name. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, beloved. Welcome this morning as we prepare to. Dive into God's Word. If you need a Bible, we got a couple of ushers uh, who are happy to provide you with the Bible. Just raise your hands and keep them up so they can see them. See your hands, and uh, they will bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word, your your very own copy. It's one of the great blessings we have uh, in this society that we can have God's Word without threat. And we pray that you would just take that, make that your own. Uh, it's our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible. We've been in the book of Leviticus, and we've said that the the theme of Leviticus is basically the holiness of God and the call for God's people to be holy just as he is holy. We come this morning to Leviticus chapter 10, and I want to suggest you that the key verse in this chapter is verse 3, where God says there, that he will be sanctified among those who are near to him and will be glorified among all the people. If that's God's agenda with fallen people, it begs a question. How does God sanctify and glorify himself when we fail? Chapter 10 is this, begins with this stunning failure to worship God properly, and this tragic consequence that comes from it. And we might be thinking, how how is it that we could come back to a holy God when we have failed so disastrously, so spectacularly, so miserably? As we look at Leviticus chapter 10, I want to suggest to you that there are five things that God graciously does to bring back to himself, to renew in holiness his people when his people fail. The first thing we see in verses 1 to 3, God reasserts his holiness agenda. He reasserts his holiness agenda. We we looked at um, verses 1 and 2 last week. You remember Nadab and Abihu. These are Aaron's two oldest sons. They are priests with Aaron. Uh, in the in the temple of the Lord, in the holy things of the Lord, um, they are the first priests in Israel. Everything up until this point has been God establishing the priesthood. So you remember the first seven chapters are chapters that give specific instructions on how to make the different offerings in Israel. Chapter eight is the chapter in which God sort of, not sort of, he consecrates the priests. He sets them aside as holy for this particular calling. In Chapter Nine, we have the ordination service they They make these offerings in the in the tabernacle being ordained to the ministry for the first time, and you remember in Chapter Nine around verses three or four, God promised that on that day he was going to come and show them his glory and that's precisely what happens at near the end of chapter nine around verse twenty three or so they make the offerings the glory of God appears, and apparently. Before the holy oil dries up on these priests, they mess up the offering. Verses 1 and 2 says, they offered strange fire. An unauthorized sacrifice which God had not commanded. For some reason, they decide they're going to worship God the way they want to worship God. They're going to come to God in a way that God has not prescribed. And they're going to offer him this offering that maybe had some holy parts mixed in with some common parts which God had forbid. Or maybe, according to verse 9, they had come into his presence drunk and made this offering and they forgot. That life is lived before the Lord. Did you see that phrase, how many times it was repeated? They made that offering before the Lord. Then that fire came out from God before the Lord. And they were killed before the Lord. You see, beloved, all every moment of our life is live coram deo, before the face of God, before the presence of God. He sees everything. He knows everything. He witnesses to everything. Every waking moment, every sleeping moment, every private moment, every public moment, every moment of worship, every moment of activity is before the face of the Lord. And sometimes I think we find it easier to sin because we forget that fact that we are living before the Lord so you see the tragedy Nadab and Abihu are meant to worship God and to make offerings to God and in the very act of offering him a worship he did not command they are killed for their sin consumed by a holy fire Wiped out in an instance here's the question why does God not wipe everyone out? I mean they represent the people and yet they have failed so stunningly and and how will God respond to such failure? Well the first thing he does again in verse three is he he basically reasserts his Holiness agenda. Verse 3, look there with me. He says, among those who are near me, referring to the priests who come near into his presence, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. That is, I will be treated and set apart as holy. And before all the peoples, I will be So now among the whole nation, among every Israelite, among every worshiper, he will be exalted and praised and honored and magnified and celebrated for the great God that he is. I love that verse. I think God says this with the kind of warm firmness of a good father. I don't think he's booming. I don't think he's, I don't think he's like, you know, I'm going to crush you if you don't get this right. I think he just, you know how sometimes kids want to go their own way. They want to do their own thing. And they keep bucking and pushing and transgressing. And every once in a while, a dad has to say, look, this is what it is. This is what I expect. This is what's going to happen. He's not, he's not threatening. He's not being a bad dad. He's, he's being firm. And warm. And I think God says to his people here when we fail in spectacular ways, listen, I'm going to be holy among you. I'm going to show my holiness through you. I think verse 3 is dripping with grace. I think it's dripping with the undeserved kindness of God. Our sin becomes the occasion. For God to affirm again His holiness and His plan to have His holiness reflected in us. To the sinner and the backslider this morning, God is not done with you. It's not. If, if you belong to God, then God remains committed to His holiness in your life. Which means God is committed to your holiness. He will sanctify Himself in your life. He will glorify Himself in your life, and you will see it and share in it. You don't. You don't have to go the way of Nadab and Abihu, because there is a God who has not consumed you, has not given up on you, and says to you the words of verse three: His holiness and glory will be among you. And beloved, if we're Christians, this is the the basis of our assurance, our certainty that we are saved and that we will be saved. God's commitment to his own holiness and glory is the foundation for our confidence. (laughs) Not our commitment to his holiness and glory. Not, Not our commitment to religious activity. Not not, not our sense of how well we are doing in the Christian life. That's no firm foundation at all because tomorrow we can be struggling. No, it's God's own commitment to his own glory and God's promise that his glory and his holiness would be in our life. That is the confidence we have, that we are his. So verse three, I think, is the Old Testament version of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where God says to the church, or Paul writing to that church says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's the foundation of our hope. And ultimately, beloved, God asserts his holiness among his people not by calling us again to ritual sacrifice. How does does he keep this word in verse 3? Isn't it by sending his son? Isn't it by coming to us, dressed in our humanity, to represent us to God and to provide a holiness for us to God? Isn't this what we read in several ways in the book of Hebrews that we've seen a number of times already? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, where the writer says there, But as it is, he, meaning Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's why he came to put away our sin by sacrificing himself on the cross. And we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14: for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those are, notice, who are being Sanctified. God keeps the promise of Leviticus ten three in the person and work of His Son Jesus Christ, who came to die for our sins and to be our sanctification, to be our holiness. So, if you hear this morning and you've never confessed your sins to God, you have never asked Him for forgiveness for your sins. If you hear this morning and you're troubled by the fact that God is holy and you are not. And you're troubled by the fact that he's the kind of God, as we see in verse 2, who will consume sinners for their sin. And you realize that, wait a minute, I, I, I've got some sin in me. Beloved, you should be troubled by your sin and troubled by the threat of God's judgment, for that's real but you should be more excited about forgiveness and about what Jesus has done to take away your sins. That's even more real. He has died for all of our sins for all of time. He has offered himself once and for all to perfect us, to make us holy for all of time. Not because of what he did, or what we did, but because of who he is. Put your faith in this, Jesus. Trust him to be your sin bearer. Trust him to be your holiness. Trust him to be your righteousness. He will never fail you and you will never have need to fear God's judgment. For he has taken it all for us. So when we fail spectacularly, notice what God does first. He reasserts his commitment and his agenda to reveal his holiness and his glory among his people. Here's the second thing he does. You see it in verses 4 to 7, God removes any pollutants. He removes any polluting thing from us. So he's not a God of mere talk. He doesn't just say something in verse 3 and disappear from the scene. He doesn't just say he's going to be holy. He He gets to work producing that holiness In his people. And specifically, God produces or begins the work of producing that holiness by removing what pollutes his people. In verses four to seven, God removes polluting people, polluting passions, and polluting places. Polluting people, polluting passions, and polluting places. Verses four to five, the ancient Israelites considered a dead body to be unclean. So in ancient Israel, uh, you weren't supposed to. Touch a dead body, or else you would be unclean yourself and ceremonially unable to worship in Israel. We keep your finger in Leviticus chapter 10. You flip over to Leviticus chapter 21. Turn to your right several pages. Leviticus chapter 21. God addresses this very thing with the priests in verses 1 to 6. There we read Leviticus 21, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, "Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron." And say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people. And he gives an exception in verse 2. Except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she had, had, has had no husband, for he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself, verses 5 and 6. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. So Leviticus 21, verse 2, makes an exception for close relatives sons, and brothers. But in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, that exception is not followed. And the reason might be because these are the very first priests in Israel. There aren't other priests or family to come and take them. So he's calling forward their cousins to come get them, to not touch their bodies, but to wrap them up in their own coats and to take them outside the camp. But I think there's a, a, maybe a, a more important reason they're not allowed to mourn here in verses 4 and 5. We'll get to that in a second. But those bodies are removed. So that as Leviticus 21 says, they can remain holy. So they are removing the polluted people. Next, notice they remove the polluted passions. Remove the polluted passions. Verse 6. Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your head hang loose and do not tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, be well the burning that the Lord has kindled." So verse six, all about mourning. First part of that verse, the letting down your hair and the tearing your clothes, those are outward signs of mourning. By passion, I mean feeling. But there are some feelings in some places and sometimes that that can pollute us as it relates to holiness. Now, verse six, the first part of it addresses Aaron and his sons. It says basically, "You cannot mourn." The second part of it addresses the people of Israel. It says, "Let the people of Israel be well. Let them mourn." But notice the wording there. It doesn't say, let them be well, what has happened to Nadab and Abihu. It doesn't say, let them be well, the death of these two men. It says, let them be well, the kindling of the fire that the Lord has done. Now, I think in that is a hint, and in the prohibition of the priests to mourn is a hint that God is right now purifying their passion, purifying their feelings. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It would be supernatural, not supernatural, it would be really natural. It would be really natural for Aaron and his two sons to be really broken and sad about the death of Nadab and Abihu. It it would be really, really natural for them to feel the the passions that come from that, the, the sadness, the sorrow, maybe even the anger. And who would that anger be expressed toward? God. It'd be easy for them to say, this is an overreaction. I mean, so they had a little something mixed in the incense, or they maybe had a a cocktail too many. You killed them for that? Come on, I need somebody to talk to me, because y'all know how we question God? Y'all know how when we suffer loss or we are in pain or something goes wrong, even though we know we were wrong, that our sins produced it sometimes, y'all know how we, we put God on trial. That our sympathy is for ourself, not God. That our sympathy is for ourselves or someone else in their suffering or in their sin more than our sympathy is expressed toward God and his holiness. You know how little we feel offended because God is offended? You know how little we weep that his law is trampled in the world, even in the church. But the psalmist in Psalm 119 says I, he can't stop crying because God's word is trampled and treated that way. No, I think in our fallen condition, it is natural for us to feel passion for, sympathy for, empathy for, humanity in its sin, more so than we feel that toward God in his holiness. And as long as we feel that way, we won't pursue holiness anytime holiness feels like it's a contradiction to what we want and feel. So I think God is purifying, he's removing the pollution of a passion that's bent toward man rather than toward God. This is why he says, hey, even when the people be well and moan, I'm going to let them grieve for you or in your place. When they be well and moan, notice that too is oriented toward God. The kindling that the Lord has made, that they're supposed to feel sympathy that God had to do this. They're supposed to feel sympathy toward God, that that God, though he's gracious and abounding in love, that he's steadfast in mercy, yet he had to display his holiness this way. You see the difference? So I think here, God is continuing his work of making his people holy, not only by removing the, the polluting people, the dead bodies, but by removing the polluting passions that so often, calls us to be sympathetic with sinners in their sin more than we're sympathetic with the holiness of God. He's got to reorient us. And notice in verse 7, he's also eliminating the polluting places. He commands Aaron and his surviving sons to remain in the tent of meeting. They still have the holy anointing oil on them. And for that reason, they can't go out into common places. So nothing that is holy, that is set apart for God, can be used or taken into places that are unholy or places that are unclean or places that are common. This is sort of one of the fundamental definitions of holiness, this distinction. And so he says, now, since that oil is on you, and since you then therefore are also holy unto me, Stay in the tent of meeting where there are only holy things. Don't go out to common places. Don't go out to places that are not dedicated to me. And notice the penalty again. The penalty for going into unclean or common places with that holy thing, that oil on them, is death. Lest you die. And that's been the penalty for sin since Adam and Eve, hasn't it? It's also an indication of how seriously God takes the holiness of his people. It's better that we should be holy and die young than that we should be sinful and live long. So as Christians now, we have not anointed with this ancient oil mixed with things or, or unmixed with things. As Christians, we've been anointed in a more significant way, haven't we? We've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. It's not about the outward oil. It's about the inward presence of our holy God living in us. So Paul could say in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 21 and 22 it is God who establishes us, or establishes us with you in Christ. He's saying look the, the apostles and the Christians in, in Corinth, all Christians we are is, is God who establishes us in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The oil of the spirit always remains on us. 1 John 2 verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. So we are not to take what is Holy. This abiding presence of God. We have become his temple in whom he lives by his spirit. We're not to take what is holy and use it for common or unholy or unclean things, to take it to unclean, unclean places. So the question for us, beloved, is this God is working in our lives to restore us or to advance us in holiness, particularly after some failure, what is he removing from us that's necessary to our holiness? What, what people, what passions, what places is he calling us out of or away from? What, what people or places or passions is he removing? From our hearts and minds and habits. But that he keeps his agenda in verse 3. Those that are near to him. Sanctify him. And those who know and love him, he's glorified. Upon. You may feel the Lord putting his finger on something even now. Beloved, don't try to shield it. Don't try to protect it. Don't try to run away with it from God. You can't outrun him. And he is going to have his holiness worked out in our lives. Now, if, if he's, if God is in your business a little bit, messing around, moving stuff around, to no, 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 I'm talking about that right there. No, I know you offer me that. No, I'm talking about that right there. If he in your business and my business, let us let him have his way. Let us let him sanctify us that we might be a reflection of his holiness and glory. Here's the third thing he does. So God not only reasserts his holiness agenda, he not only uh, does that, he removes the things that pollute us. Here's number three. God restates, he restates our job descriptions. He restates our job descriptions. That's what we see in verses 8 to 11, where now, notice, it's God who speaks directly to Aaron. I find that full of grace too. He's restoring the priesthood. He's restoring Aaron and his remaining sons, and he doesn't do that through a mediator. He doesn't do that through a go-between as he had been speaking through Moses. Now God himself comes to Aaron himself in order to affirm them in their calling. In order to put them, as it were, back to work. So verse 8, God speaks there. He says, uh, verse 9, excuse me, drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting lest you die. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations. Again, this is why many people think that Nadab and Abihu may have been drunk in verses 1 and 2 when they made that offering. But whatever the case, God is really clear. Those who are near to him must be holy. And, and one thing that is not holy is drunkenness. They, they need to be sober. That's the first bullet point on their job description. They need to be sober-minded when they are worshiping God. And this might have been something that required a little self-discipline, right? Because remember, in all of the offerings that are being offered to the priests and brought to the priests, one of them was the drink offering. They would bring wine as an offering to God as part of their, the cookout. So there's wine at the cookout, y'all. And the priests were allowed to drink it. But not so much that they should become drunk with wine. They should become intoxicated. God warns them against coming into his presence in that way. And we must remember that we're meant to worship God and to minister to God in our right minds. Sober. Now, just in case you're thinking, see, Pastor, that's why I ain't called to the ministry. See, I know how y'all think. Keep in mind that all Christians are priests. We are now a kingdom. Of priests, just as Israel was supposed to be, we are now, according to First Peter chapter two, and all of us, whatever our role is, we are called to sober-mindedness. So, in First Peter or First Timothy chapter three verse two, that's one of the qualifications for elders that elders should be sober-minded. In First Timothy chapter three verse eleven, that's one of the qualifications for deacons and deaconesses that they should be sober-minded. But three times in First Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 8, three times all Christians are called to be sober-minded. Each of us, we we are priests to our holy God. And for any of us to be holy before God, especially after a failure in sin, perhaps particularly after a failure involving alcohol, we need to be sober minded. Part of our job. Number two, on the job description, he says, Be discerning. That's what we see in verse 10. He says, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. So, one of the reasons to be sober is so that we can make these kinds of distinctions. Now, this was, this was part of the job of a, a priest in ancient Israel. They were not only priests making uh, offerings, but they were also judges in Israel, judging, discerning when things were clean or unclean. There was a case of leprosy. You had to go to the priest for the priest to decide whether you were clean or unclean. He had to come to your house and inspect your house. There was no home inspection agency. The priest did that. He would look at the walls or maybe look at the clothing to see if that thing that was exposed to leprosy or something and was unclean to see if it was clean now. He had to make that determination. He had to decide whether things were holy or unholy in the eyes of God. He had this role as a kind of religious judge in order to shepherd the people away from the unclean to the clean away from the unholy to the holy. And that requires sober-mindedness. And the third thing in their job description was they were to be teachers. So they were to be sober, they were to be discerning, and they were to be teachers. In verse 11, you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. I love that. All the statutes that the Lord has spoken. Doesn't it remind us of Matthew 28? 19 and 20, when as Christians we are called to go into the world and to make disciples, what? Teaching them to obey everything the Lord has commanded. This is an an Old Testament parallel to the Great Commission. The priest had a responsibility to disciple the people, to train the people, to teach the people how to follow the Lord, how to live for him. And we put this job description together, these three things, And we see that God was using the priesthood, even after this great failure, to lead the people into becoming holy, set apart, that distinct nation that he wanted them to be among all the other nations. And we can see then that as the priesthood goes, so goes the people. Nadab and Abihu's failure, listen, did not end Aaron's and Eleazar's and Ithamar's calling. God gets the nation back on track by getting the priesthood back on track. He's like, yeah, yeah, I took you out the game because of that foul, but now you got to go back in the game. I had to get your mind right, call the time out. Now it's time to go back and play, to get back in the game. Be sober, be discerning, be teachers. There are a couple applications I want to make for this. Number one, we too have to get back in the game after we have fallen. One of the things that we sometimes feel when we fail, if our failure is serious, our failure is repeated, we often feel disqualified, don't we? We we often feel benched. We, We get that, right? It's like, ah, I messed up. I can't do this. I can't do that. And and pretty soon the enemy will have you thinking in ways that that really sort of make you stop living like a Christian. He'll have you thinking, that okay, now you have no part in the Great Commission. You have no part as an evangelist. You, You have no part in the things that Christians are called to do because of this sin. That's what the enemy does. He's always whispering about our sin, always trying to bring us condemnation. But now if we are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. That's how we know that voice is not from the Lord. And instead, what we need to do is, is, yes, remove the pollutants, but then get back in the game. We have to keep living like Christians, and God in his graciousness is not done with us. We need to remember that. He still has things for us to do, places for us to go, people for us to serve, a testimony for us to give. That's what he's like. And so, beloved, maybe you're here this morning and you are thinking more about your failure than your calling. I want to suggest to you that God would rather have you focused on your calling. He's taking care of your failure on the cross. Your your calling still needs to be lived out. Here's the other thing, beloved. Not only don't, don't, you know, get back in the game, but here's the other thing. I want to implore some of you, and I, I, I really don't know who this is for, but it is for all of us. Don't don't throw the church away. God did not throw Aaron and his sons away. God didn't trash the priesthood. God didn't reject all of Israel because of that failure. So we shouldn't throw all churches and pastors away because some pastors and churches have failed. God, God doesn't throw away the ministry because of the minister. No, in this text, God buries the bad minister and continues the good ministry. I'm concerned about people who are leaving the entire church because a church or a type of church has erred or wronged them. I mean, speak the truth about sinful churches, right? That's what what verses one and three are about. Speak the truth about sinful churches or sinful leaders, but, but hold on to God's church itself. But to put it a different way, part of our job description is to learn to distinguish. Distinguish between the holy ministry and the unholy ministry. Distinguish between the clean ministry and the unclean ministry and cling to the clean and the holy. Don't let the enemy tempt you into throwing away the one thing that Jesus said he was building in the world church. Here's another thing, follows from that last thing. Don't cancel ministers or Christians merely because of their associations. Aaron and his sons could not have been more closely related or associated. Those are his sons. Eleazar and Ithamar could not have been more closely associated. Those are are their, Nadab and Abihu are their brothers. But, but, But Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar did not share in Nadab and Abihu's sins. Now, here's the thing. In the church world today, people not only cancel folks who should be canceled, they also cancel everyone associated with them. Now, if you were a fundamentalist, you would have something called the doctrine of separation. Any any real self-conscious fundamentalist would, would, would abide by this doctrine, which means I not only separate from the person who is considered sinful, I separate from anyone else who is associated with that person. Right? Now, I want to suggest to you that in the church world today, a kind of fundamentalist ethic has woven its way through the whole batch of dough so that now people who would reject fundamentalism very much act like fundamentalists who, who say, okay, Pastor X should be canceled for this or that reason. And, and they, that's, they're right about that. But then it's like, but Pastor Y and Pastor Z and Pastor B, they used to hang with Pastor X. We need to cancel them too. That ain't right for It It ain't right. Not even an infinitely holy God does that. So, yes, he judged Nadab and Abihu, but he affirmed Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar. We got to learn to distinguish. A whole lot of good, holy folk and holy work is being burned and trashed right now because we're too sloppy to make distinctions. and got the nerve to think that we the holy. One more application. What should you do if you're coming here from a context where ministers have failed to serve God in holiness, and perhaps you have been hurt by that? Maybe they have mistreated you in a particularly sinful, no holy way. A couple of suggestions, just suggestions to get us started. First. Find a church, a congregation, where God has removed polluting people, polluting passions, and polluting practices. That could be the church that you're you're currently in. Maybe the congregation has fired that pastor, has removed those elders. That's a good thing. Stay there and work for the health of the church if the Lord gives you grace to do that. Or, or maybe you come from a congregation where that man has falling spectacularly, sinfully. It's obvious. It's repugnant to Scripture, and the congregation has lost its mind, and the congregation has said something like, oh, we need to extend grace, beloved. Grace never extends so far as to leave unholy persons in the pulpit. That's license, not grace. That's lasciviousness, not grace. Grace actually corrects Okay? So, so maybe they have removed them, maybe they're not, but maybe you're looking for another church. Then find a church where the leadership and the congregation are committed to God's job description. Being sober, being discerning, being taught and being teachers. That again, that could be the church where the failure happened. If God has given them grace to turn. Or may mean a new congregation. But what I want you to understand is the thing we do with our church hurt is we bring it to church. We bring it to God's people. We bring it to God because it's the church that heals us of church hurt. Certainly not the word. Certainly not the word. when God is restoring us after a spectacular fall, he reasserts his holiness agenda. He removes those things that pollute. He he restates our job description. Number four, God renews fellowship with us. He renews fellowship with us. That's what we see in verses 12 to 15. Uh, In verse 12, Moses starts speaking again. He speaks to Aaron and his surviving sons. That, That phrase, surviving sons, that hits, doesn't it? It is full of both sorrow and relief. And Moses tells these survivors that that God still wants them at the cookout. God wants to renew fellowship with them. God is not finished with them as his people because they failed. The Lord meets our failure with an invitation to renew fellowship with him. And so there are two offerings here. There's the grain offering in verses 12 and 13. And remember, the grain offering was to be eaten only by the priest and only in a holy place because it was most holy. Notice how God now starts with the priests, the ones who failed him, the ones who were close to him. Reminds us of Jesus asking to see Peter after the resurrection then. And verses 14 and 15, it described the peace offering or the fellowship offering. And that was an offering that was to be not only by the priests, but by their families. It would be eaten not only by the one who offered it, but by their whole family. And so now, God is renewing his fellowship with the entire kingdom. And verses 13 and 15 tells us that this was their due forever. They were receiving a forever invitation to God's cookout. It's a marvelous picture of God's grace, God's kindness. God gives back what should have been lost. So if and when we fail, do not stay away from God. Let me say that again. If and when we fail, do not stay away from God. Don't run from Him. Allow the Lord to remove the pollutants and allow the Lord to renew the fellowship. Sometimes, beloved, in our failures, we suffer longer than we have to because we too often believe the demonic lie that. God doesn't want us, or we're not worthy. Beloved, God is still committed to his holiness in us, and restoring and cleansing us is something he will do with us in a way that allows us to enjoy his fellowship. Remember the words of 1 John chapter 1. Verses 5 to 7 in particular there, the Apostle John writes these words, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's, God's, that's John's way of describing God's holiness. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, those two things can't go together. We, we can't say that we are Fellowshipping with a holy God while we are walking in darkness. He's light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we're walking in the darkness, we're not walking in God. Then we say that we're lying, and the truth ain't in us. We don't practice the truth. Verse 7 But if we walk in the light, we come back to where God is. We walk with God as he is in the light. Notice the text says, We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The darkness of sin would tempt us to think we need to hide it. We get scared of the light. But it's in the light where the cleansing happens. We need to run into the light. And so verse 9 of 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's what God is like. The kind of God that wants fellowship with people who were walking in darkness. To bring them into his light, where we can enjoy his cleansing and enjoy him forever. God is committed to our holiness, and part of what he does is he renews fellowship with us, which brings us to the last thing. He will also reveal what's pleasing in his sight. He'll reveal what's pleasing in us. We get that from the final scene, verses 16 20. The first time these two brothers, Moses and Aaron, actually talk to each other. The conversation reveals what's pleasing in the heart from God's perspective. We first see Moses. Moses was Israel's human deliverer from slavery in Egypt. He was God's prophet. He was the one who did these miracles um, throughout their their, their escape from Egypt. He was the one who spoke God's word. Moses, Moses was great, one of the greatest leaders in all of Israel, but Moses was not perfect. Verse 16 says, Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering. So after the fiasco of Nadab and Abihu, where they messed up the offering, we can understand why Moses is like, wait a minute, we got to get this thing right. People dying up in here. All right, so I don't know what y'all was talking about while I was out there, but look, I'm coming in here to inspect stuff, right? He wanted to be sure it was all correct. We can understand that. Now, according to Leviticus chapter six, verses 25 and 26, when the sin offering was made, the priests were supposed to eat certain parts of it. That's part of the whole process of making atonement. They would burn some parts, they would eat some parts. Or, in verses 29 and 30 of Leviticus 6, if they weren't go- if they sprinkled some of the blood of the sin offering on the altar, then they couldn't eat any. It all had to be burned up. So it's one of those two things. Either you're not going to sprinkle the blood, and you're going to eat part of it, or you're going to sprinkle the blood and not eat part of it. So when Moses came to inspect things, Moses found They hadn't done either one of those things. That the sin offering had been entirely burned up and nobody had eaten as God instructed. And he went in and looked at the altar, wasn't no blood on the altar. So Moses, Moses looked ticked. It says there that he was angry that they did not obey God's word. Now, Moses reveals one heart that we can have when we're trying to pursue holiness after failure, it reveals the heart's temptation to legalism. Leaders and people can double down on obedience to the law as a way of trying to recover from the injury to their conscience because of their sin. Now, obeying God's word is critical, it's important, but there are two aspects. To obedience to God's word. There is obedience to the letter, and there is obedience to the spirit of the law. So now what Moses is interested in right here is the letter of the law, but God is interested in both. God wants us not only to obey his word, but also to do it with a with a heart that is for him. See, this is how the, the legalist misunderstands God's word. This is sometimes you're talking to a legalist, and they always beating you with the Bible, they always in the Bible and and they they put some verse, and you see the words are on the page, but you have this sneaking suspicion. I don't think that's what God meant. Or something seems missing in this conversation, like grace and mercy and hope and the gospel. You leave a conversation with a legalist, and you feel like an Old Testament Israelite, not like a New Testament Christian. Because they have been attempting to bind you to the letter of the law without understanding also the spirit of the law. This is what Moses reveals to us. God wants worshipers, though, whose hearts and actions are for him. Then finally, Aaron speaks. Verses 19 and 20. It's The first time we hear directly from Aaron. In verse 3, you notice at the end of verse 3, it says, and Aaron held his peace. So after losing his sons and after God reasserting his holiness, Aaron put his hand over his mouth. He didn't say nothing. He didn't complain. He didn't weep or cry. He didn't protest. He didn't question God or accuse God. He was just silent through it all. And he's been speak, spoken to throughout this chapter, and we don't quite know what he's thinking because he ain't saying nothing. Not till verse 19 that Aaron breaks his silence. Moses is going off on Aaron's sons. You notice the text says there he spoke to Eleazar and Ithamar, and it might be that Moses is like, you know, I ain't gonna, man just lost his sons. I ain't gonna go off on him. I'm gonna beat up on the sons. But this is all happening under Aaron's watch. He's the high priest. He's responsible for everything that's happening there, and so Aaron perhaps speaks up, partly in defense of his son, partly to accept responsibility. He says, "Now, behold, look—that's what that word means. Look, and this is what the word means." <laughs> it says, "Today, they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these." Have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? The Aaron had been clearly dealing with his grief, and clearly dealing with the what, what feels like a contradiction to us sometimes. Lord, I'm serving you, and I'm suffering. How is it that we have been making our offerings today? trying to serve you and to worship you, and yet these tragedies have fallen on me. He's having a Job-like experience. Aaron's like, I ain't did nothing wrong. I'm making the offerings. I'm here trying to serve the Lord as best I can, and yet these things, these calamities have, have fallen upon me. Anybody ever been serving the Lord and suffering? And this is what Aaron is saying. He's like, look, you get all my boys now. We've been doing this. And and, and, and and all of this has befallen us. Then he asked this question, this rhetorical question. How can I fake it with God? Would, would God be pleased if I were to sit down and have a fellowship meal with him and act like I ain't crushed? Is that what God wants, a robot? Moses, you telling me I should fake it till I make it? Are you telling me I should just go through the motions? Would that be pleasing to God? How can I go to the house of laughter when I'm sitting in the house of mourning? This is where we learn there are offerings that God despises and offerings that delight him. Write this down. You can look at this later. But Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. And you can also write down for a slightly longer passage Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. But Jeremiah 14, and 12 says this The Lord said to me, Jeremiah says, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. We're talking about Israel. Don't don't pray for their welfare. Verse 12, though they fast, I will not hear their their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept it. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. You read the prophets and you see over and over again where God is like, man, Remove from me your solemn assemblies. Remove from me your offerings and your fasts. I'm not pleased with them. Because their hearts weren't right. But then we read of surprising sacrifices that actually delight the Lord. So you guys will notice this verse. Uh, Many of you probably have it memorized. Psalm 51, verse 17. There the psalmist says, David says, the sacrifices of God, The real sacrifices now, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So if there's a choice between bringing God some grain and a goat and a bull and bringing God a broken and a contrite heart, God's like, bring me the heart. Bring me your brokenness. Bring me your contriteness. Bring me your weeping over sin. Bring me your weeping over your life. Bring me your lament. That's pleasing in my sight. Aaron didn't quite offer the sacrifices according to the letter of the law. But Aaron offered the acceptable sacrifice of a broken and contrite spirit. He didn't play church with God. He didn't go through the motions. He quietly and honestly offered his broken heart to God. Some of us only have brokenness and contriteness to offer God. We don't get excited about the rituals of Christianity. For example, we give financially, but not from hearts of faith. We serve, but we feel empty. We go to the fellowship and we are surrounded by people, but we feel all alone. We read the word of God and it seems lifeless. We tried counseling, and while the counselor kept trying to fix us, He's still left with that broken and contrite heart. What do you do? Here's what we sometimes miss. We don't need another offering. We we don't need some offering to fix our hearts and then worship God. The broken and contrite heart is the offering. Is the offering. Give the contrite heart to God. Make your tears your drink offering. Make your moaning and groaning your hymn of praise. God will not despise you. He will not despise you. What Aaron does is quietly lament before the Lord. And beloved, what the Christian church needs to recover is the ability to lament, to express sorrow in faith years ago, Carl Truman asked a question. The question is the title of a blog post. It was, what do miserable Christians sing? And I remember the first time he spoke on that, I heard him speak on that, and he used that blog. The whole, the whole, the whole conference started laughing, started giggling. And, and you know why I started giggling? Because most Christians don't have a category for miserable Christians. They have a category for the fact that you can be a Christian and be full of lament, full of sorrow, full of brokenness of heart. And and, and so then most Christians and most churches think, okay, the thing we need to do with all that sorrow is to tell you just rejoice. And that's in the Bible. Rejoice always. But so also is weak. And and so we have a church culture, a church world, a church, church life, particularly in the United States, particularly in all of our affluence, that only finds happiness acceptable. It's just disturbed by unhappiness, by sorrow. And so we are miserable comforters. We are Job's friends. We keep speaking up trying to fix something. And all we really need to do is sit in sackcloth and ashes. We need to learn to lament. We need to learn to sorrow. We need to learn to just sit in it and not fix it. Not everything in the Christian life is happy. Not every outward duty expresses the inward spirit. God gives us the language of lament to give expression to that brokenness and contriteness in our hearts because of sin and the effect of sin. We should sing songs of lament. We should offer prayers of lament. We should normalize conversations with lament. We should stop treating lament as immature, unchristian. Got to make room for the lament that turns to God in faith. Aaron is no less full of faith than Moses at time and circumstance as their hearts in really different places. Beloved, understand this, that the path to holiness after failure will very often be the path of the mess. So how does God cause his holiness to live among a people after their failure? Well, God reasserts his holiness agenda God removes their pollution. God restates our job description. God renews fellowship with us. God reveals our heart and what's pleasing to him. May God make us holy as he is holy. Let's pray to God. Father, we offer you this prayer of lament. This weeping and brokenness in the face of a a sin-wrecked world. Father, we start with our own failures. We confess our sins to you and the, the thought of our sins, they grieve us we are sometimes trapped by the the frustration of having done it again we tire of our sin and we tire of our seeming inability to conquer our sin. We tire of falling for the same lies. We tire of coming to you in a half-hearted way. We tire of our imperfect obedience to your word. We tire of the effect of our sins on our loved ones and our family members. We tire of being afraid of you because of sin. Lord, Lord, who will deliver us from this body of death? Thanks be to you, God. You have delivered us to Christ your Son. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we lament the state of your church for you have poured out grace upon grace upon your church and yet we have squandered that grace. We have loved precious stones we have loved wealth we have loved comfort we have loved ease and we have left disciple making undone we have left missions undone we have left evangelism undone we have left loving our neighbor undone <laughs> and then we whine that your church has so low a reputation in the eyes of so many well, we lament lord the church's laziness and distraction and complacency, quicken your church, Lord. Stir us up with zeal. Remind us of our first love, and put us back in the game. And Lord, we lament what we see in our communities, Lord. The the evidences of brokenness, Lord. The drug addiction. Lord, gun violence, failing schools lord we we are we are sorrowful, we are broken, and we say, "How long, O oh Lord, will children be abused in their homes? Will people who have taken marriage covenants betray them? How long, O oh Lord, will spouses feel unloved and uncared for be neglected and abandoned? We look at our community and we say, how long will politicians make promises that they never plan to keep? Will the rich get richer and the poor be crushed? Is there no justice in the world? How long, O Lord? Come quickly. Establish your kingdom. You're the God who does justice every day. Won't Won't you do justice in these things, Lord. Won't you end gun violence in our city and in our neighborhoods? Won't you end domestic abuse? Won't you end child abuse? Won't you end, O oh Lord, the underfunding and the failing of schools? Won't you, won't you end, O oh Lord, many injustices that are inflicted upon people made in their bring to you our sorrows this morning. Our distress. Bring to you our hearts, Lord. Broken and contrite. Mm. And and Lord, we do confess that sometimes we are shocked that our hearts are not more broken than they are. Sometimes that's because of your grace, but sometimes it's just because our hearts are hard. But we lament our own hardness of heart. The blind eye we turn to the suffering, the, the stop ears that we refuse to give to the weeping. Forgive us, Lord. Help us, Lord. We bring our hearts to you this morning. Broken and contrite, we take you at your word. You will not despise this offering, and we pray, O Lord, do your work in our hearts. Renew us in holiness. Make us holy as you are holy. Have your way with us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.